Cinnamon looked out at the hillside above his villa. The olive trees were just becoming heavy with green fruit, but he couldn't see them. He was too distracted. He scratched his beard with the edge of the papyrus in his hand and made his decision. Cinnamon turned to the messenger who had carried the papyrus to him. Tell my cousin I will do as he asks. I will send word to him when everything is ready. The messenger, a compact, muscular man wearing a military cloak and belt but no armor, saluted and took his leave. Back down the hill, beyond the villa, Cinnamon could see the walls of the town of Epidamnus, with the roofs of the taller buildings, especially the basilica, visible above the line of the ramparts. Beyond that was the sea, dazzling blue in the bright afternoon light. Cinnamon had been acquiring land to the north of the city for quite some time, but he had just moved into the villa a little less than a year ago. He knew the place, though, from many visits. He knew the city's leading men and many of the common people as well. His reputation had opened doors all over, though these days he often had to reassure people he was in no danger, that he and the emperor were on good terms and there was no reason to worry. After tomorrow, he might have reason to worry again. Hello and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. Today's episode, Boldness Be My Friend. When I finished last time, we had left Theodoric holed up in Epidamnus, waiting to see what was going to shake out from the convoluted three-way conflict between himself, Theodoric Strabo, and the Emperor Zeno. I had hoped to get Theodoric all the way to Italy for the showdown with Odoacer in the last episode, but in retrospect that wasn't ever going to happen. There was too much setup and background needed, especially with the palace intrigues in Constantinople. There was never any hope of covering it all in one go and so we ended up stopping a full nine years short of the goal. I was disappointed, listeners. I was disappointed in myself. But then I got over it and realized that none of us are here for a sprint. If you all didn't want the details, you would have stopped listening a long while back. Maybe you did already stop listening, which poses some interesting philosophical and physics problems. The upshot is, this is a relatively short episode, but it is dense, ladies and gentlemen. Like a fruitcake, or a really good milkshake. It is a blizzard of places and names, and I will be producing some extra material to help navigate it all and posting them on the website. That website, of course, being darkagespod.com. I strongly encourage you to avail yourself of them. Links will be in the notes to this episode right where you would expect. What makes the episode so dense is the continuous round-robin of conflict and negotiation that Theodoric the Amal engaged in with Emperor Zeno between 480 and 488. Those years would see the Ostrogothic leader up, and they would see him down. The Goths would find a new homeland, and then abandon it, or be tossed off the next year. Ultimately, the whole thing came to a head, and Zeno opted for the leaf blower strategy. That is, if you have a problem that you're having trouble with, you just turn it into your neighbor's problem, as loud as possible. At the end of this episode, the Ostrogoths will set out for their date with destiny in Italy, but the road they took getting there was made up mostly of detours. So get out a map. Onward. I want to back up a tiny bit to when Theodoric was on his way westward toward Epidamnus. To quote myself at the end of the last episode, somehow he tricked his way into the city. That little phrase was a consequence of rushing to get to a decent stopping point and keep the episode under 45 minutes. In fact, Malchus tells us exactly how Theodoric got into Epidamnus. Epidamnus, by the way, goes by an unreasonable number of different names, depending on who's drawing the map. So if you're looking for it, it might be Epidamnus, 
Durachium, Durazzo, or Duras in Albania today. On my maps, the ones I've made for this episode, it's Epidamnus. Epidamnus was the principal city of the province of Epirus, and the terminal port at the western end of the Via Ignatia, one of the most important roads of the empire. It faces Brindisi across the Adriatic Sea, and was critical for sea travel between Italy and the Balkans. The story of how Theodoric came to occupy this profoundly important town begins with the man we met at the top of this episode, Sidamond. Sidamond had started his career like many Gothic men from beyond the frontier. He joined in the plunder and pillage of the border regions under the leadership of Valimer, and was fairly successful. He was a member of the Amal clan, but nowhere near the top of anyone's list of leaders. He had another family connection on the Roman side of the border, his uncle Edoingus, who was a general in the Roman army. Sidamon joined his uncle and served in that army with distinction, making other connections along the way. Soon, Sidamon had built a reputation as a friend of the Romans, and his service began to bear tangible fruit. He built up estates in Epirus, which was handy when he fell afoul of Emperor Zeno and had to extricate himself from the capital when things heated up. It seems he wasn't in that much trouble, because he was able to work his way back into Zeno's good graces. Good enough, at least, that when Sidamon told the people of Epidamnus, with its 2,000-man garrison, that the emperor had ordered an evacuation to make room for approaching Ostrogoths, they believed him. Once that space had been cleared out and the gates opened, Sidamon sent word to his cousin Theodoric that all was in readiness. He could come on down and establish his new kingdom in Epirus. Because that was what was at stake, of course. Implicit in every deal we've talked about, all of the various possible modes of land ownership that I've suggested at one time or another, the ultimate goal for Theodoric was to establish for himself a semi-autonomous kingdom under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. The attempt to create one in Macedonia had failed, thanks to the intrigues of Strabo and Zeno, and now he would try again, with Epidamnus as his capital. Earlier, when we were talking about matters of succession, I think I kind of implied that Theodoric was Theudemir's only son. That is not so. He was just clearly the best candidate for the top spot when the old man kicked off. He had a younger brother, named Theudemund, who will figure in today's story. While we're on the subject of siblings, he also had a sister named Amalfrida, who will be popping up in the future as well, and at least one other sister whose name we don't know. Names are the bane of every history podcaster, and I'm afraid I don't have a good solution to the problem. It can be very hard to keep everybody straight, I know. The old casting a movie thing that I started the podcast out with ran out of steam really quickly because I was spending more time browsing IMDb than writing episodes, and I haven't come up with anything else. If you have a great idea, use the contact page on the website to send suggestions. Uh, where were we? Oh yeah, Epirus, 479. When Cinnamon's message reached Theodoric, it came as welcome news at the end of some frustrating events. The Ostrogoth's progress across the mountains had slowed, and he'd been caught by imperial emissaries who were suggesting a new deal might be possible. He had stopped at Heraclea, and was waiting for word from his own ambassadors. While he was there, he was provided with supplies and gifts by the bishop of Heraclea, which suggested that the emperor might be sincere. And indeed he was, though details were slow to arrive, and there was the usual diplomatic stalling and hemming and hawing as Theodoric waited to hear from Sidamond. He was in fact using the illness of his second sister, the one whose name we don't know, as an excuse to put off giving the Romans an answer, when word did arrive that Sidamon had accomplished the clearing of Epidamnus. Hurriedly, Theodoric ordered his armies to pack up and move toward the coast immediately. He demanded further supplies from the citizens of Heraclea, who refused, 
and then had to watch from the citadel as their city was burned in retaliation before the Goths left. The departure caught the Romans flat-footed, but they got their act together quickly, and two generals were put in charge of the pursuit, named Sabinianus and Adamantius. Sabinianus's attitude was that those who could kick ass should kick ass, while Adamantius would have agreed with Churchill, jaw-jaw is always better than wah-wah. Theodoric split his forces into three columns to cross the mountains, one led by him, one by his second-in-command, named Soaz, and another by his younger brother, Theudamond. Amalfrida and their mother were in Theudamond's column. The next city along the road was called Lincidnus, on what is now Lake Orhid in North Macedonia. This city was well-supplied and well-defended, and had already heard about Theodoric's little tantrum in Heraclea, so the Goths were forced to move on. All along the way, messages flew between Theodoric and the Romans, and it seemed that Adamantius's more pacific approach might win out. Meeting places were proposed and agreed, and Soaz, the second-in-command, was willing to surrender himself as a hostage for the duration of the negotiations. Sabinianus, though, would make no guarantees of his or anyone else's safety, and so discussions fell apart. Theodoric and Soaz's columns were able to make the run down to Epidamnus without incident, and they occupied the city as planned. But there was a problem. In the course of the journey, they'd been separated from Theudemon's column, and it hadn't arrived yet. Worries about his brother, sister, and mother were interrupted when Adamantius and a contingent of 200 men appeared outside the walls of Epidamnus, having moved with what seemed like supernatural speed over the mountains. Adamantius set up a fortified camp across the Urzen River, and negotiations began again. Theodoric took the opportunity to read the Roman general the laundry list of grievances, stemming from Zeno's earlier betrayal. As reported in Malchus's history, quote, You promised that the general of Thrace would immediately join me with his forces. He never appeared. You promised that Claudius the paymaster would come with the mercenary's pay. I never saw him. Third, you gave me guides who left the easy way toward the enemy and led me aside over a steep path with sheer cliffs on both sides. Here, I was not far from complete destruction with all my forces had the enemy suddenly attacked. End quote. Once he'd gotten all of that off of his chest, he was open to negotiation. His first proposal was to leave his non-combatants someplace of the emperor's choosing and take his 6,000 men and, quote, the Illyrian troops and whatever others the emperor would send, and he would destroy all of the Goths in Thrace on the condition he be made commander-in-chief and received as a citizen to live in the Roman manor, end quote. Destroy the hated Strabo and become CIC? Theodoric was confident enough of the walls of Epidamnus to propose that not only should he have his cake, but it would only be right if he were allowed to eat it as well. That 6,000 warriors is an interesting number, since it suggests that Theodoric had lost nearly half his strength since he had left Thrace. The intervening years had not been kind. Most of those lost were probably defectors and deserters, rather than actual casualties. But it does emphasize the danger that always faced a warlord. Success would mean growth and glory, Failure would mean the slow bleeding away of men and strength until there was nothing left. Zeno's proposal was actually along the same lines, though less immediately focused on destroying Strabo. Zeno proposed as a settlement area a region around Pautalia, which was between Illyricum and Thrace. That way, Zeno would have Theodoric's men available should Strabo need to be dealt with, and vice versa. Around this time, Theodoric also made the fascinating alternative proposal that he should be allowed to take his men to Dalmatia and fight in support of Julius Nepos to restore him to the western throne. 
Adamantius was unmoved by this proposal and rejected the idea. The overriding goal of Roman diplomatic efforts was to keep the Goths away from the Adriatic at all costs. The worry that they would develop a navy and basically become Vandals 2.0 was a horrifying prospect. Instead, Adamantius reminded Theodoric that he had received honors from the emperor, and it was the emperor's prerogative to revoke such honors at his pleasure. He also pointed out there had been several times over the last year when the Ostrogoths had been surrounded by superior Roman forces, but they still lived. Did Theodoric really think that was thanks to his own military prowess? No, Zeno was allowing him to live because he believed the young king had potential, if only he would get out of his own way. The lands that were being proposed around Pautalia were sparsely populated and fertile, and the Goths would be able to settle there with little opposition and feed themselves easily and well. Regardless, under no circumstances would they be permitted to remain in Epirus, and insisting on it would bring the might of the empire down on their heads. It is possible that rumors of Theodoric's proposal to fight for Julius Nepos made their way back to Odoacer, and that that is what triggered the assassination of Julius Nepos in the following year. Though it's more likely in my mind, and this is my own personal speculation, that there was already some kind of plan in the air which both Theodoric and Oacer caught the scent of. Theodoric saw an opportunity, and Odoacer saw a bud which needed to be nipped. We'll never really know. Either way, obviously nothing came of the plan at the time. Theodoric was interested in the Pautalia deal, and accepted the offer in principle. But where do we find the devil? That's right, in the details. He asked to be allowed to winter in Epirus. His army was exhausted, and he couldn't ask them to make another trek across the mountains so late in the year. He also wanted to know where he could leave his non-combatants while he and his warriors went and secured the area around Patalia, and the Romans were non-committal on it. Theodoric needed a deal, and soon. To smooth the way, he offered his mother and sister as hostages. But he didn't actually have them at the time, since they were still in the mountains with Theudemon's lost column which turned out to be Theodoric's Achilles' heel. Sabinianus, the more hawkish of the two Romans, made his move. He caught and cut off Theudemon's contingent and took many prisoners. Theudemon managed to escape with the two royal women, but only by abandoning his men in a truly shameful way, even breaking a bridge behind him and ensuring their capture. Theudemon had been passed over for the kingship for good reason, it seems. Sabinianus now dictated Roman policy, and negotiations were abruptly halted. Things might have ended right then and there for Theodoric had Sabinianus pressed his advantage. Instead, he consolidated his forces, gathering to him a contingent led by another Romanized Goth named Gento, as well as regular forces of Epirus and an Illyrian army led by Hunulf, the brother of Odoacer. All of that took time, and Theodoric was able to stay out of trouble and keep his army together through 480. And then the wheel of fortune turned again, and Theodoric emerged from his sudden crisis as suddenly as he had fallen into it. In 481, Sabinianus was a victim of court intrigue and lost his command. The same year, Theodoric Strabo died, and all at once, two of the three greatest obstacles to Theodoric's continued survival were removed, by luck or fate or divine intervention. I say two out of three because Zeno wasn't going anywhere. But the removal of the aggressive Sabinianus and Theodoric Strabo changed everything. By the way, I don't know what happened to Sidamond the man who'd gotten Theodoric into Epidamnus. That story is only attested in by Malchus of Philadelphia, and he doesn't share the information. I presume he joined Theodoric for further adventures, but I can't say for sure. Let's close the door on Theodoric Strabo before we move on. 
While Theodoric and his Ostrogoths were struggling, Strabo and his Thracian Goths had been generally on the way up. They were George and Elaine, for those listeners with a sharp memory for 90s TV. I suppose Zeno would be Jerry in this analogy. Lord, punch me in the face. In Theodoric's absence, Strabo received money to pay his 13,000 men, along with command of some units of regular troops, which swelled his army to 30,000, along with being reappointed as Magister Militum. He was strong enough to pose exactly the kind of threat that Zeno had been worried about all along now. With no local counter available, Zeno was compelled to bring in outside contractors. He recruited a contingent of Bulgars from the steppes to move against the Thracians and try and keep them under control. This is the first ever mention of the Bulgars, the Turkic steppe people, who would eventually, of course, become Slavicized and give their name to Bulgaria. That's all quite a ways off, though. Strabo drove these Bulgars off and marched toward Constantinople, in retaliation for being attacked in the first place, and to make the usual points about strength and necessity and so on. I wonder, at some point, did the citizens of Constantinople start to treat the approach of all these armies like spring weather? Oh, it's a bit gothy outside today, I think I'll wear my heavy cloak. All did not go according to plan for Strabo, though. Trouble with his own commanders led to failure, as did an attempt to cross over to Asia Minor, boats continuing to be the Goth's particular bete noir. After riding high, Strabo suddenly found himself exposed, with a fractious army deep in hostile Roman territory. He withdrew westward, stopping at a place called Stabulum Diametis. A new horse had been presented to him, and Strabo was breaking in the new mount when he was thrown from the saddle. An unfortunately placed lance made the fall fatal and so ended the career of the squinter. For Theodoric the Amal, that lance couldn't have been better aimed if he had held it himself. We don't know for sure how old Strabo was when he died, but he had been the leader of the Goths in Thrace for over a decade. Strabo left behind two brothers, a wife, and a son named Rekatach, who took over his father's position. He exhibited none of the qualities of his father, and would have shot himself in the foot had there been gunpowder available. He attempted to consolidate his power by murdering his two uncles, and in the process alienated a huge portion of his army, who went over to Theodoric. No word on whether or not Theodoric sent him a cake or anything. Rekatach sought refuge in Constantinople, one of many washed-up princes who found their way there to that great collector of people. Zeno wasn't going to just hand over land and honors to Theodoric just because Strabo was dead. He would still have to earn it. So the Ostrogoths decamped from Epirus and headed back into Greece, plundering Thessaly as they went. They still had no farmland, and while not what you would call admirable, plunder was the only option they had to support themselves. The thoroughness of the destruction finally moved Zeno to offer the much-desired treaty in 483. Theodoric was made commander-in-chief of Thracian forces, and the Ostrogoths were granted territory in Moesia and Dacia Repensis, along the Danube around the fortress city of Nove. They had held territory briefly in that neighborhood before, before the great showdown with Strabo. Nove, by the way, is just outside the modern town of Svishtov in Bulgaria, and it hosts a Roman reenactment every summer that looks pretty fun. Just an FYI. There seemed to be a chance of a peaceful life for the Ostrogoths, at last, if they wanted it. Which, you know, maybe? The cherry on Theodoric's Sunday was the consulship for the year 484. Legally, that made him a Roman citizen and meant that he had to be in the capital on January 1st of that year. He took the name Flavius Theodoricus. He was 33 years old or so, consul, king, and treated with all the honor that all of that implied. It was his year, 
and you could, if you were of a symbolic kind of mind, see it as the integration of Theodoric the Barbarian King and the boy who had been brought up as close to being Roman as he could possibly have been. He was and always had been both, but now he had the potential to live as both. By the way, that name Flavius was an extremely common choice for barbarians taking Roman identities. We usually identify characters in our drama by their most memorable of their many names, for obvious reasons. But Stilicho, Aetius, Aspar, and Rissimer had all been Flavii. There was one piece of business that Flavius Theodoricus had to take care of while he was in the city. Possibly at the suggestion of, and certainly with the knowledge of Zeno, Theodoric tracked Rekatach down and killed him in broad daylight. It's not clear to me whether he did the deed himself or outsourced it, and morally it doesn't really matter. Rekatach was a busted flush. He presented no threat to Theodoric whatever, and Theodoric's motivation probably had to do with Rekatach's murder of his uncles. All of these nobles were related to each other. The Amal clan was broad and widely distributed. Killing Rekatach was probably the fulfillment of a blood feud on Theodoric's part. It wouldn't be the last one in the career of Theodoric the Great. Blood feuds is one of the few features of German society that comes down to us clearly and unambiguously. Modern scholars reject the idea of a single monolithic Germanness that was shared all across Northern Europe, but references to feuds appear all over the place. Most compelling is the way they shaped law codes of the time. Over the course of this season, we'll probably be getting into some discussions of law codes, as the kingdoms that replaced the empire in the West worked to synthesize their own tribal traditions with the deeply admired Roman legal ideas. The blood feud was antithetical to the Roman ideal of rule of law, and kings continually encoded mechanisms to prevent private vendettas from spiraling out of control into wider destabilizing conflicts. For a long time, their success was limited. In the future, when he was ensconced as king of Italy, Theodoric would promulgate his own law code. But as king of a federate nation under arms, when the opportunity arose to settle his own scores, he clearly didn't hesitate to do so. 484 through 486 were full of seemingly contradictory events. Theodoric was placed at the head of an army to go and deal with Isaurian rebels, only to be replaced by one of the sons of Aspar before there had been any fighting. An equestrian statue was erected in Theodoric's honor, and his return to the city was celebrated with public festivities. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and it doesn't suggest that there was an abundance of trust between Theodoric and the emperor. Shortly after returning from the aborted campaign, Theodoric left Constantinople and went back to his new kingdom at the borders of Scythia. While he had been away, presumably his people had begun to settle into their new home. At last there was land to work, food to grow, rather than take, a permanent place there on the banks of the Great River, and if Theodoric and Zeno had been able to get along, that might have been where the Ostrogoths' wanderings ended. But of course they couldn't, and it wasn't. Exactly what prompted Theodoric to undertake a plundering expedition in 487 isn't known. Maybe he just needed to keep his fighters busy and flush, like any other warlord. Why he decided to aim them south into Roman Thrace rather than north into Scythia probably was due to the simple calculation that they had more stuff in the south. It was simple blackmail, really, the almost traditional activity of federate leaders when there was no foreign war to keep them busy. We've seen it over and over again. Zeno mobilized Bulgar allies again, but the Ostrogoths swept them aside, just as Strabo had. It's a little hard from our modern sensibility to see the need for all of this. Surely Theodoric had what he and his people had been seeking the whole time. Surely now was a time to cool it with the extortion and let things be for a year or two. 
Maybe he felt he needed a bigger subsidy, or titles for his followers, who knows. This time, the, the, the assault on the capital was the real deal. The Ostrogoths burned several suburbs, cut the aqueducts, and blockaded the roads. There was no question of actually taking the city. Theodoric had grown up there. He knew better than that. This was just the old game. He was just playing it very enthusiastically. Zeno was probably rolling his eyes then as he gave orders for Amalafrida, Theodoric's sister, who was being held as a hostage, to be turned over to her brother with a selection of fine, shiny things. The Goths accepted this deal and went home. The mores about when one did and didn't leverage hostages seem fairly arbitrary and confusing. Why even take them if you're just going to hand them over the second the army appears at the gate? In this case, it probably was Zeno's calculation that harming Theodoric's sister would turn routine plunder into actual war, and that wasn't worth it. It's just a little odd to see. Zeno may have been thinking that he needed to get a way to get rid of this altogether too motivated barbarian king, who never seemed to be satisfied, and who kept kicking in his door and wiping his boots on his carpet. And the opportunity presented itself almost immediately. Alas, to talk about it, I shall require one more digression. Do you remember the Rugians? They were another fragment of the Huns' empire, and they had been the hostile neighbor of the, on the Ostrogoths' western flank when they had lived in Pannonia. For years, they harassed the Italian kingdom of Odoacer, as well as providing a refuge for Roman opposition to Odoacer's regime. A treaty kept a precarious peace through the early 480s. Is there any other kind of peace on this show? But Zeno was sending support and encouragement to the Rugians, especially when it became clear that Odoacer was in talks with anti-Zeno elements in the empire and preparing for some kind of military intervention. Obviously, Zeno was going to make a move against Odoacer, but the Scyrian was faster on the draw. He interpreted a civil conflict in the Rugian royal family as a breach of the treaty and attacked the Rugian kingdom in the fall of 487. The Rugians were defeated quickly, their king Philetheus and his queen captured and executed in Italy. Their son, Frideric, escaped and attempted a counter-assault, but was chased off. This was the war that spelled the end of St. Severinus's religious community, which in truth doubled as an anti-Odoacer rebel's cell. I've talked about it before, so I won't go into it all again, except to say that after their departure, that section of Noricum between the River Enns and the Vienna Woods would become a no-man's land, used mainly for military staging, and would remain so for 500 years. Frederick and the men left to him retreated down the Danube into Roman territory and right into the Ostrogoths. They met no resistance to the move from the Romans. Indeed, Theodoric welcomed them with open arms. It's possible, more than possible, really, that Zeno had quietly made arrangements on behalf of his Rugian clients. It's also possible the whole thing simply provided a handy casus belli for Theodoric and Zeno to mount an attack on Odoacer in Italy. The quickness with which an agreement between Theodoric and Zeno was hammered out after the Rugians' arrival suggests that this whole plan had been in the works for some time. In that agreement, it was stipulated that, quote, After the defeat of Odoacer, Theodoric, in return for his efforts, was to rule Italy for the emperor until he arrived in person. End quote. I think you'll agree there is some wiggle room in that wording, if it is reported to us accurately. It will become an issue in the future, I assure you. So Theodoric gathered up his Ostrogoths, and mass, again. They waited for the harvest before leaving, and in 488 hit the road again, heading west this time toward Italy. Nothing at all was certain about the new venture, except that it would mean war. 
We'll talk about that war and its outcome next time. I have to reiterate my plea to all of you to check out the maps that accompany this episode. And once you're done admiring the lovingly crafted maps, consider subscribing to the Facebook page or to Instagram at Dark Ages Pod. There's Twitter, too, same handle, but honestly, I'm not sure how long that's going to last at this point. If you've already done all of those things, rate the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever else you go. Or write a review. Speaking of which, Maud the Third, you didn't have to change your review. I'm sorry if I made you feel some kind of way last time. And lastly, if you want to support the show in a monetary kind of way, you can do it at ko-fi.com slash darkagespod. That is ko-fi.com, the digital tip jar. Your support is never expected, but is always very appreciated. That's going to be it for this episode. Until next time, take care.